We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. We've been your host, Gavin Phipps, and I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And by Michael Fahey. Great to be back, Gavin. And we'll be jumping straight in this week with a look at what some of the possible outcomes of tomorrow's elections will mean for the coming years. And we'll begin with the most obvious one and the simplest one to talk about, of course, that being the DPP winning both the presidential and legislative elections. So, Brian, this one can be summed up in about six words, really. Well, I mean, I'm not sure if that's green terror, but uh, there's the interesting thing, though. Maybe there'll be further continuity from the Tsai administration, but also it would signal further mandate to the DPP. And so there's a possibility that it would be pushed for further uh, of the DPP's political agenda regarding, for example, such matters as the military. So that'd be an interesting scenario, but a bit unlikely. Well, the DPP are not going to win both. <laughs> what a spoiler. But what, the D- if they did, Michael, what would happen? What can we expect? Well, we would expect... Uh, at first, pretty strict continuity with what the Thai administration has been doing on international relations. And we'd probably see uh, some slightly different, slightly less progressive, um, more infrastructure and building up Taiwan type policies from uh, from a putative president Lai with the backing of the legislature. Um, but I, I think it would be very much staying the course, uh, at least for the first couple of years under Lai. And Brian, if it stays the same, do you think it will stay the same across the board? Because, of course, Lai ching could put his people in and remove Tsai's people. Yeah, that's right. And there were such attempts to do so, particularly in lead up to the legislative elections. Lai does prefer people close to him. And even his choice of VP candidate was influenced by, does he pick someone from his own faction or from Tsai's faction? And the end result was Xiao, who is from Tsai's faction. So that's a conciliatory uh, olive branch in some sense. And so it does depend. I mean, I think that may happen. He may try to swap out people. He does seem to trust those closer to himself than to Tsai. And Tsai, as an outgoing president, could perhaps remain influential in the party, as, for example, with the KMT, former president. That my angel has been. And Michael, if Tsai remains influential within the party, could she be a backseat driver for the Lai administration? I think the Lai administration will certainly consult with Tsai on international matters and relations with China. She's a tremendous resource, and I think they might even deploy her for some international missions if possible. But I think that in general, the Lai administration will want to show quite quickly that they're in charge. And I agree that most of the Thai people will lose their jobs, which is very reasonable and and to be expected. Uh, I think one of the big things that would be different is that uh, remember that Lai was a two-term mayor of Tainan. And there's been a considerable shift in spending to the South. Uh, And I think that we would see that continue expand and expand to the center uh, as well, because one of the long-term policies of the DPP, which has been a little bit downplayed under Tsai, has been balancing uh, Taiwan's north and south developmental divide. There's been a lot of progress on that under the Tsai administration. I don't want to underplay that, but I would expect a lot more going on in the south and the center. 
Yeah, I think absolutely, because there's been some years in which the KMT has tried to make inroads in the south, after the meteoric rise of Han Goryeo, for example, in Kaohsiung. The KMT hopes it can replicate the successes, not just in Kaohsiung, but also in Tainan. And that is questionable if it could take place, though they actually do have presence in local politics, not necessarily at the mayoral level. But then I think the DPP is concerned about losing traditional territories. Uh, in the meantime, it is quite interesting, actually, when you do see the pan-green camp trying to make inroads into historically blue areas. So maybe that's a corresponding phenomenon. So I can see that, because I think particularly the South, and there is a perception that there is a lack of resources among many quarters. And now we'll look at the DPP winning the presidential election, but losing the legislative election, Michael. That's probably the most likely outcome in a very uncertain election. A lot would really depend on how well Ke Wenzhou's TPP party does. If they get enough seats to hold the balance, there will be a very interesting situation where the KMT and the DPP will have to constantly be making deals with the TPP to get legislation passed or opposed. And I would expect that Lie and the DPP should be able to do this effectively because it's quite uncertain how much longer Koenja will be in politics to help his legislators. They could very well find themselves on their own in the next election, and they will need to distinguish themselves to their constituents by bringing money to those districts. And they're not going to be able to do that unless they cooperate with the DPP. But I expect them to drive very hard bargains. So it's not an ideal outcome at all for the DPP. They would much prefer to have the majority. But if they do end up not having the majority, it may be a different situation than what we saw under the Chen Shui-bian administration, where the executive branch and the legislative branch were locked in an extremely unproductive stalemate. It's a question because particularly uh, Han Goryeo would be perhaps the uh, legislative speaker of a KMT legislature. And so that would be quite interesting because that would seem to represent a return to partisan politics. The KMT leadership was actually cautious of Han during his run, but now the states of the party are such that they're willing to allow him to have a position of such power in the legislature. And if he does take up that position, then I think there would be this kind of battle lines drawn. The KMT may really draw a line in the sand and refuse to cross it and kind of dig in its heels. Uh, but then it's interesting regarding the role of the TPP because there's all been this talk of them possibly playing the role of a kingmaker between the two parties uh, if it is split. And the KMT has tried to pressure the TPP into cooperation uh, and explicitly pushing the TPP to not cooperate with the DPP, whereas the TPP has tried to emphasize that it is open, actually, to that. Even if during the presidential debates and vice presidential debates, one saw much more exchanges between the TPP and KMT about the possibility of cooperation. Uh, but then the TPP has the danger of being reduced to a quote-unquote little blue party, no distinguishable than the KMT except being smaller. Uh, and so it also needs to be distinguished from the KMT to maintain its brand, particularly for party its position itself as independent of traditional distinctions in Taiwanese politics. But then siding with the DPP at this juncture will also anger some of its base because it has also attracted some more blue or even deep bluer uh, constituents in the meantime. And Michael, what about if the DPP lose the presidential election but win the legislative election. That scenario is pretty unlikely, but I would expect them to, uh, in general, 
conduct scorched earth partisan politics against <laughs> the executive branch headed by a KMT uh, uh you know, had us, again, the role of the TPP would be very important. Uh, in, in many ways, I think the TPP is likely to hold the balance of power. And I, I think there are a lot of signs that they're planning to jealously guard it. Uh, the big question for me is whether or not they will assert it as early as the, the election of the president of the legislative UN, try to have some grand deals in there. They might go toward the KMT on forcing some kind of legislation through to support nuclear power, for example. Uh, but then they might well cooperate with uh, the DPP on other issues like military spending. And we presumed in all that conversation that the TPP, Taiwan People's Party, will do OK in the legislative elections. But Brian, what happens if the TPP simply crashes and burns? Yeah, that's also a question because it is also possible. And actually, I think structurally, many things are working against the TPP in the long term. Uh, it's linked to Coenger, for example, who may not always have a political career, that it's in this delicate balancing act with the KMT being different, but also part of the same camp. And that has led to the defeat or dissolution of many a small party in Taiwanese history. Uh, and so I think it's a good question. I mean, a lot of it is also possible that the backlash against Coenger, its major political figure, could also impact how it performs. Uh, a lot of its individual pl politicians are former Pambu politicians that had political careers before joining the TPP. So they'll want to stay viable in some form. But I think that there are some questions. And so it's also important to see how it performs this time. There's also a lot of talk of young people supporting the TPP and Koenja. And I think we'll have a clearer sense after the dust settles if that was true. I expect the TPP to do reasonably well in the legislative election, at least on the party list. Um, if voters strategically abandon Ke for the presidential election because they think he's unelectable, I think it's likely that they will still cast their party vote for the TPP to provide more diversity in the legislative UN. So I, I think the party, the, the party list, they'll do pretty well. But what's much less certain is how well they will do in the districts. I'm not optimistic about them winning more than a, maybe a couple of seats, but we'll see. And let's throw a long shot in the scenario situation here, Brian. And Mr. Kerr wins the presidency <laughs> and his party get all the party list seats, but the DPP and the KMT are split with the rest of the legislature. So that would be an unprecedented scenario, but uh, I also just wonder what happens. And the answer is probably chaos, because I also don't think the TPP realistically plans to take power who would be Ko's foreign minister, for example. There's a lot of questions about those uh, positions that would have to be filled. And it's interesting, too, the party scenarios that they are planning for. I mean, the DPP probably is, and to my awareness, is planning for scenarios in which it does not control the legislature. But if it wins the legislature, now what? Uh, so I guess we'll see. But uh, Ko would be happy, if, maybe even confused. Um, but uh, we would see what happens. So, Michael, Mr. Kerr wins the big house. If Ko wins the presidency... Michael will eat his woolly hat. I will eat my woolly hat. <laughs> uh, but if he did, I think that uh, his tenure as mayor of Taipei is probably the best template we have for an extremely uncertain situation. Uh, he'll probably appoint 
a lot of people from different parties to government and then have fallings out with them and argue with the legislator like he <laughs> did with the Taipei City Council. Uh, and in the end, I, I don't think it will be deeply unstabilizing because I think that the end result of this will be that Taiwan's very effective civil service will gain a lot more power in a situation like that. And just as Taipei City basically ran quite well despite Ke being mayor, so too I think the central government will continue to roll forward. It's just that we won't we won't see the kind of change that is promising. And and that will actually, I, I would go be so bold as to predict that if Ke won the presidency, he would be a one-term president because I think his supporters will be deeply disappointed in him, just like people in Taipei City were disappointed. But what do you reckon he'd do for some of the main ministries, like the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Defense Ministry? We simply don't know. I think that he would pick just random people around him. I mean, for example, when the, the polling occurred uh, for the polling debacle for the Blue-White Alliance, he just got his friend, who is a random doctor that dabbles in polling, to take up that position as the expert for the TPP. And so maybe random people are in the vicinity would take up very key roles, and that'd be uh, interesting. And who should be worried about this, Michael? Everybody? Everybody should be worried about this. I think the United States should be worried about this because one of the... Um, features of Ke is that he fancies himself to be a fiscal hawk, so he's not going to want to spend large amounts of money on the military. Uh, I think China will be concerned because Ke is simply so unpredictable. Uh, Ke has said that, uh, which is quite reasonable, that that he's not going to talk to China unless they stop sending warplanes and and doing exercises around Taiwan. So we could be very quickly back into almost the same situation we are, we are with the DPP. And so I think China would be worried about that as well. I mean, Brian, if, this, if Mr. Kerr wins the presidency, do you see lots of people taking to the streets every weekend? It could take place. Uh, I think particularly he has a habit of making statements that are then uh, provoking outrage from the public, and that would occur even further when he has such a massive platform as president and perhaps causing international incidents. And I think there would be protest against him. I, I think the, more, the one that I'm more worried about is a more probable, possible scenario, which is that Hoyoi wins the presidency, which I think would trigger a flowering of social movements and much tougher response from this ex-cop than we saw underneath the Ma administration. So uh, things could get kind of dicey and confrontational if Ho won. But if Ho won, Michael, and the KMT didn't get a majority in the legislative UN, but the DPP won a majority in the legislative UN? The DPP will try to stop Ho from being able to run the government Effectively, and there will be a great deal of partisan conflict. Um, but in the end, the president has control over international affairs and China matters, and we will see. I, I, I one possibility is that if Ho is elected, that he will, I think, sooner rather than later. Uh, he may end up purging all these deep blue people who have helped him get into power, sidelining Zhao Zhao Kang and the others and taking a much more moderate and centrist path that I think 
we've always seen in the past that he prefers and instinctively takes, as he did, for example, when he was mayor of New Taipei City and told people to vote for their conscience on nuclear power, for example. Uh, He's not naturally an ideologue or a deep blue uh, politician, even if he's personally very conservative and very in favor of law and order and this sort of thing. And Brian, if Ho does win, do you think the deep blue or the more mining Joe faction of the KMT will try to push its way into power and make decisions for him? It could occur, and that's one of the concerns, and that's definitely one of the DPP talking points about what happens if Ho wins, because there's the many voices in one body issue of the KMT for quite a while, and you can see this quite visibly with his vice presidential choice. But then the interesting thing is that Mike Joe, with his recent comments that have provoked such outrage, may actually have created an opening for Ho to purge such individuals. And so with Ma sideline, that actually perhaps creates an opportunity for Ho to uh, expand his space. And so it is a question there, actually, and it is a question which direction we, he would go. And that's also part of the reason why I think the KMT internally has been very cautious of him. And Brian, the KMT win the presidential election and win the legislative election. Hands down, no arguments at all. Yeah, I think they would take it as having the mandate and they might rush through policies that might actually be a bit unpopular. Uh, for example, the cross-trade services trade agreement. It's interesting that the KMT is now calling for a return to an agreement that was protested so hotly a decade ago. And I think sometimes it is just that they just don't have ideas to fall back on. And with regards to the Nigerian consensus, not exactly popular, but then they keep returning to it. And it seems like they can't really advance beyond it. Uh, there may be a, be a way to reframe their traditional talking points regarding economic engagement with China, uh, but they keep using the same terms and frameworks that anger the Taiwanese public. And I just think there's a kind of lack of ideas. But then they would go full steam ahead with this if they actually had that power, because I think they would view it as having the mandate and get a little bit overconfident, actually. And do you see that happening, Michael? Or do you think they may have learnt something from the last ECFA debacle involving young people and the legislative UN? I think that Ho is naturally a centrist, and that if the Taiwanese people put him and the KMT back in power, what they're saying, and I, you know, I wouldn't be too surprised at least to see Ho as president, the Taiwanese people, after you know a pretty scary couple of years here, post Ukraine and post the Nancy Pelosi visit, may very well decide to, after having taken two steps forward under Tsai, to take one step back and try to preserve the status quo in a more conservative way rather than continuing with Tsai's policies. Whether or not Ho will risk the legitimacy of his administration by pushing forward with the services pact, I have questions uh, about that. I think that he will be focused on consolidating power and possibly getting rid of some of the more deep blue elements in order to secure a future second term, which I think he's going to need to broaden his base. And I'm not sure that forcing through the uh, services agreement would really serve that purpose. It might also upset his ability to meet with China on the basis of the 1992 consensus, which itself is already extremely controversial. And here's another scenario, Brian. The DPP wins the presidential election, but it wins by such a small minority that it makes him basically what could be considered a president that no, the majority didn't want. Yeah, that's also a possibility. And it could be a narrow race. And so it is actually a question. So the question is, how much of a mandate does Lai have? 
But I also do think that there have been times in which, particularly with Chen Shui-bian, that there was a victory because of a split in the Pan Blue camp, and it was quite narrow, and that did not prevent political legitimacy on the part of Chen. Uh, it's true that was a process of transition in Taiwanese democracy at that point in time, but I also think that might apply here. And so I think it, it does depend. But uh, either way, there uh, the DPP still would try to be getting things done. I think because of Taiwan's authoritarian legacy, the president actually has far more political power and the people expect him to have more political power than he actually does under the constitution. And therefore, even if Lai wins, and if he does win, I think it will be by a quite narrow margin, I expect him to take a firm grasp upon the levers of power uh, especially over foreign policy, relations with China and the military. And there won't be too much question about that. The big issue for him will whether or not he's going to be able to fully fund the defense commitments that Taiwan needs to make. And we'll look at now possibly a completely split legislative UN, Brian. Yeah, that could occur. And there could be infighting in the legislature. I mean, there's always literal fighting in the legislature. Uh, and so that also really does depend. And I think then uh, it might lead to an inability to get things done. Uh, but who controls the presidency might still have more say at the end of the day. And so I think then it's it's improbable then that there would not be a push for something to happen. I, I'm slightly more optimistic. I think that uh, a completely divided legislature would be a whole new era in Taiwan politics where you would have to make provisional coalitions around different issues. And yes, there would be a lot of ugly deal making that the public won't be totally comfortable with, but it could lead to more innovation and in government and change. I, I think it could be a kind of a process of creative chaos. <laughs> but Michael, would those negotiations take place in public or behind closed doors? That's an extremely interesting question. I think that the TPP will be minded to make them as public as possible at first. And if they're not effective, they will probably will have some way of making secret talks perhaps outside of the legislative UN in order to be effective. But it will be a grand experiment either way. I mean, I think that we really saw with the um, with that famous meeting at the at the Hyatt uh, at the Grand Hyatt Hotel that there is a strong desire for more transparency in Taiwanese politics and politicians are aware of that. In practice it's very difficult to pull off because you get chaotic situations like you had in that grant. People aren't used to operating like that in public. And it will be extremely interesting if it happens. And I, I think there's a good chance of something like that happening with the TBP holding the balance of power in the in the legislature and neither the KMT or the DPP having an absolute majority. That's the most likely outcome. And it's going to be uh, a new experimental era in Taiwanese politics if that happens. And I think it could be good. It will be the change that Kopi people are looking for. <laughs> yeah, or it could be the uh, various meetings are being declared in factories and Xingdian and different places, and that's how governance occurs. And then the media is scrambling around to the next secret meeting. <laughs> I would enjoy that. And Brian, what about the minor parties? The Obasan Party, the Green Party, the State Building Party. Do you see them getting elected any seats in the legislative UN? 
So it's actually a really good question because uh, sometimes it's not even the uh, getting elected; it's meeting the percentages to get specific subsidies from the government, for example.、Uh, but it doesn't look like that they will do too well.、Uh, it's even anticipated that New Power Party might face extinction this time around because it's lost its key figure, Huang Guochang, in the past,、uh, the one that stayed while Freddie Lim left, and.、Uh, Its current slate of candidates are don't really have a very strong public profile、uh, in the general public, and that's a question. They also have faced the criticism of、uh, criticizing the DPP and questions about loyalty and so forth. They, I think, rehabilitated on their current leadership because they did attack、uh, the TPP very strongly and Huang Guochang as well. But in the end, it's quite difficult. And as for the TSP, that、uh, the Taiwan State Building Party, it has a deliberate strategy of not challenging the DPP, and that sometimes doesn't really work out for it. There are actually races in which it is up against. A DPP candidate, but、uh, it's it does have strong links to DPP as well, and it's deliberately by design a little green party in the sense of being smaller than DPP, but also separate,、uh, but still on the same camp, and that actually doesn't work for its advantage in elections sometimes. I think that the only small party that will be in the legislature next time is probably just the TPP, although what has happened to the MPP. Should be a very sobering lesson for the TPP because they may find themselves in a very similar situation. They don't really share any ideology or values.、Uh, unlike the NPP, they do have a charismatic, you know, one-party person figure in Kuenja. But he's getting older, and it's really uncertain how longer he will be relevant. So they may find themselves. As a quarreling caucus without a shared platform or set of values or goals, much like the MPP did, and they may find that people get tired of them very quickly. What about independent candidates, Brian? Do you see a lot of people voting for independent candidates just because they are so tired of party politics? It really depends. I think it's、uh, very unlikely. I don't think、uh, there's a strong independent that is currently、uh, rising out of Taiwanese politics.、Uh, it is to be questioned about some races or even、uh, some positions, but I think it's, it's unlikely. And I think particularly it does point to the role of the party. I think in terms of the capacity to run for office or hold office.、Um, it's interesting because, for example, Miao Boya is now aligned with the DPP, but is the only candidate of the Social Democratic Party, which is basically a non-functioning party. But still, she has retained that as part of her brand that she's not part of the DPP. And so、um, it is quite interesting. But then the other major figure, Fan Ring from the、uh, the Social Democratic Party, is now a DPP legislator, and yet she sometimes does still wear the Social Democratic Party、uh, party colors on public. But then she's, of course, now actually part of the DPP. I'm personally very interested in the Miao Boya campaign in Dan District in Taipei, which is probably one of the top two or three wealthiest parts of Taiwan, and also has lots of really highly educated and liberal people. But it's also more conservative than people think at the same time. So if Miao Boya can't win in Dan,、uh, despite Doing an all-out grassroots-level campaign, which has been very impressive to watch, I think it will show once again that Taiwan is, in fact, a little bit more conservative than maybe some international observers have been led to, to feel during the years of the Tsai administration.、Um, I, I expect the KMT candidate, who's、uh, A、cookie cutter, mind Joe, Junger Dashie,、um, NCCU type person, very bland to win.、Uh, 
uh, and there's been a very ugly deployment of the death penalty in that case, which I think sets up very nicely the issues and the, the struggles that a progressive candidate uh, faces in Taiwan. But it, it should be extremely interesting. There's another race like that, which I think is fascinating, which is, uh, I believe, the new Taipei Eight election, the one in Zhonghe. And that's where you have a fairly prominent sunflower activist, uh, Wu Zheng, running against the son of a family which has been deeply involved in Zhonghe politics for decades and owns property, you know, has enormous amounts of property and money and that sort of thing. And it's a real clash between the progressive element in Taiwanese politics and the real conservative money property classes who are responsible for the high pr- housing prices and this kind of thing. So uh, I don't think Udung will win there, but if he can't, it shows how much we're really up against to try to reform this key issue that that has been, people are saying, is of such concern to young people in Taiwan. The problem is, is there's a lot of other people out there who own property who have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are. And we're going to see in Zhonghe which one is more powerful. The DPP, as in past election cycles, has used a slate of younger candidates to brand itself as younger and more progressive than it maybe actually is, which has sometimes led to accusations that it is putting a kind of fresh coat of paint of young people on a much older party. But then uh, there are some cases in which the people has managed to recruit have been successful in winning elections, and Miao Boya has had a lot of staying power and has commanded a lot of public discourse uh, through her uh, orational skills, that she's a very good public speaker, very good at debating. Uh, on the other hand, Wu Zhen is someone that has been running for office many times in many positions, but has not been successful. And it was actually quite interesting to me to see that the DPP did want him to run, actually, because he has not had a great track record. And it's been in places such as Da'an or Xingyi and those uh, areas in which it is actually very hard to win, uh, particularly for a pan-green candidate. And yet uh, he has not been as successful. And so then he is still being fielded in a very uh, kind of tough circumstances in Zhonghe. And so it's also it's quite interesting to watch. But it's also interesting to see how some politicians have had staying power as youth politicians, as young progressive politicians, despite lack of electoral successes. Yeah, I would I would give a shout out to Miao Boya on that. She's she's because I live in Don District in Taipei. And it's really impressive the way she's running a traditional grassroots campaign based on service. She's at, She and her people are at every micro event, every Lijiang winter dumplings party and uh, even the Linjiang's uh, <laughs> offices. You, you'll see she, uh, her people there. So she's she's not she's running a very, very traditional Taiwan retail politics campaign on top of her highly progressive brand It's fascinating. And moving on now, and of course it's election eve today as we're recording this show, and the main parties contesting the presidential election will all of course be holding big rallies as they make their final push for votes. But one person who won't be attending one such rally is, well, former President Ma ying as the KMT hasn't extended an invitation for him to attend its evening bash in New Taipei's Banqiao district. The party has not made any formal statements on the issue. However, Ma's office on Thursday released a statement in which it said he will not attend the rally 
rally as he didn't receive an invitation. Now, that's the first time that Ma has not been invited to attend any major KMT election rally. And the failure to invite Ma follows comments by the former head of state earlier this week, who, speaking during an interview with German state broadcaster Deutsche Welle, he responded to a question concerning trusting China's leader Xi Jinping by saying, as far as cross-strait relations go, you have to. Now, KMT presidential candidate Ho Yi, after he said that, responded to Ma's remarks by politely saying, well, the former president's views are somewhat different from my own. And speaking to reporters on Thursday, Ho flatly ruled out holding talks with Beijing over unification if elected, saying he will not touch on the unification issue during his presidency. Ho also dismissed the possibility of high-level exchanges with members of China's leadership under his leadership in Taipei, saying things have changed since the Ma administration, and well, he bashed the DPP for that one, but he went on to stress that he will seek to resume dialogue with China via existing channels to de-escalate tensions if he becomes head of state. So, Michael, Mr. Ma says something. In fact, I'll give you some pop culture, Michael. Oops, I did it again. Mr. Ma had a Britney Spears moment. Indeed, he did. This was <laughs> one of two events so far this week which uh, maybe initially looked like they had the potential to be sort of January surprises that might change the course of election. I don't think in the end that either of them did. But it was extremely interesting because Ma showed once again that he's really not in touch with the Taiwanese electorate on relations with China. He wants to go much further in the direction of integrating Taiwan with China than people in Taiwan are prepared to do. So when he said that you've got to trust Xi Jinping, that seemed extremely damaging to the Ho campaign. But the Ho campaign, I think, really dealt with it extremely well. They immediately put distance and said that they had some different thoughts and then at the next day at a international press conference they said they won't be discussing unification will not be on the table and i think it actually gave ho an opportunity to reassure voters that he's not under the thrall of mind joe and to put distance so i i think it actually helped it arguably helped ho i i don't think it's it, this incident in and of itself although disturbing and it shows where Ma Zhou really stands as if we needed too much more information about that but it was really clear uh, it, it really actually provided an opening for Ho to be his own man and he took it and I think that that will be helpful for him. in any event he diffused that crisis but of course, Brian, the DPP described Ma's comments as being detached from reality, with party spokesman Dai Wei Shan telling reporters that Ma's remarks are a despicable attempt to give foreign media a false impression of the public consensus on cross-strait relations in Taiwan. It is actually quite funny to me that this occurred, because the last time a KMT senior politician talked to Deutsche Welle, there was also a lot of blowback with Eric Chu walking out of the interview, and then also uh, getting the name of his party wrong. He tried to call it the Democratic Party, which is a bit uh, puzzling. <laughs> uh, and it was the same person, too. So there's a bit of a question there why the KMT went there and went unprepared, and this occurred. Uh, but I think what's interesting is that I think this could have actually been a game-changer in the election uh, for Ho, for the Ho campaign, had it occurred somewhat earlier. 
uh, because as it is, it occurred just a few days before voting is going to take place. And so it might be read as inauthenticity on the part of the KMT, a mask off moment, and that Ho is, uh, he's done his best job at PR management and, you know, not inviting Ma is definitely the right choice to cut ties there. But then it might be viewed as inauthentic, revealing the true views of the KMT. Particularly, I think, undercutting him is that Joshua Gong is his vice presidential candidate, another extremely hardline uh, politician. So he's done the best he can. And I think in a, in a, if it had been earlier, it would have been that opportunity that he could use to expand his power and distinguish himself. But it might be a bit too late. Um, so I, I wonder about the timing. And Michael, we'll throw it out there because we can. If Mr. Hoyoe wins the election, will Mr. Ma be invited to the big we won the election bash? I, I think he certainly would be. Uh, you know, he's he's still going to be, show, you know, they're still going to try to package him as a respected party elder that they're talking to. And, and, and probably the Ho administration will be, uh, a Ho administration would be relying on people from the Ma era to handle cross-straits relations and that sort of thing for a while. So he's not going to want to poison the well with Ma, but it makes a lot of sense to me that uh, don't invite him to the last uh, rally before the vote, but if you win, you can bring him on stage for the big, you know, final <laughs> anthem when 70 guitars get on. <laughs> and the Ministry of National Defence this week issued an apology on Tuesday over the English wording of a nationwide alert message sent out after a rocket carrying a satellite launched from China diverged from its anticipated flight path in the direction of Taiwan. The message mistakenly referred to the object as a missile rather than a satellite, as was clearly stated in the Chinese language version. Now, the apology came after opposition parties demanded the government fully review and explain why a national alert warning of a missile flyover in English was sent out in response to a pre-planned launch of a Chinese low-orbit satellite. Now, the presidential office did release a statement later on that day, very much later on that day, in fact, sort of like near midnight of that day, in which it denied the charges of any political motivation behind the alert, with the presidential office spokesperson saying the national security team analysed all relevant information concerning the sending out of said alert and found there were no political intentions behind it. Now, the Minister of National Defence also said, admitted, was told to admit, we don't know, that the message was sent out without first sending it to the presidential office for review, which, needless to say, Brian, ended up with calls, immediate calls, in fact, for the Defence Minister to step down. Yeah, there are such criticisms from the KMT, and so it doesn't surprise that uh, this misstep is leaned into. Uh, what is interesting to me is the framing afterwards. I mean, definitely there were some major missteps on the part of the Ministry of National Defense uh, in terms of the translation error, uh, but also the lack of communication strategy and the confusion that resulted. Premier Tian Jianren, for example, was in the legislature being questioned. He saw the text and he said, missile. So he evidently looked at the English. And uh, that has been leveraged on endlessly by the KMT to criticize the Thai administration, because even high-level government officials such as the Premier were very confused and they learned about it through this. Uh, in the meantime, Joseph Wu was at a press conference with much international media and he said satellite. And so that also uh, points to some confusion and lack of coordination there. But what's interesting to me is that the KMT has dug its heels into saying this was a concocted incident, that it was only for the sake of elections, implicitly acknowledging that any narrative about national doom or Chinese threats benefit the DPP. And instead of criticizing the DPP on its missteps regarding uh, failure to coordinate this correctly, because that could have actually provided an opportunity for the KMT to come off as more, uh, more moderate on China, less pro-China, but they did not take up that opportunity and went the other direction instead.
Yes, the KMT has been very much framing this as a Taiwan deep state effort <laughs> to help the DPP and uh, fix the election against the KMT. If the KMT loses the presidential election, I'm sure that we will hear a lot more about it. However, I don't think that this, again, was the other event this week that looked like it might be our January surprise and that it could it could change the course of the election. But in the end, it turned out to be kind of a nothing burger, I think. Uh, basically, the people on the DPP side who perceive a threat from China will feel that there is, in fact, a threat from China because it's sending satellites over Taiwan. And the people from the KMT who blame the nefarious DPP for interfering in the election and making up misinformation from China uh, will have more fuel for their conspiracy theories. I do want to emphasize how unimportant the translation error in English was, though. There are probably... 150,000 people in Taiwan, maybe, who looked at the English first. The vast majority of people in Taiwan looked at the Chinese, realized that it was a satellite, did not think that it was a uh, an air raid. They thought it was an air defense warning and thought it was reasonable, even if it is also reasonable to think that, well, if there was a crisis like this, there could be problems in communicating in English. And what about the hundreds of thousands of people who speak Vietnamese or Indonesian who probably aren't going to be able to read the English either? So it is a, it is a concern, but I think it's something we can learn from rather than being too excited about it. And we don't know, as we're recording this show, whether the Ministry of National Defence has reached out to a translation department. But, Michael, of course, another issue was many local people actually thought the rocket was going over Vietnam because of the Chinese wording. I thought so, too. <laughs> and yes, many, uh, a number of Taiwanese friends uh, had exactly the same experience. I think it had to do with the fact that the words for Vietnam, Vietnam, were in the middle of the text, and your eye fell on them first. And I honestly thought, why are they telling us about a satellite uh, going over Vietnam? This is very strange. And had that been the case, I would have been far more alarmed at their alleged incompetence and that kind of thing. <laughs> but reading it over again, I quickly realized that it was going over southern Taiwan. And it wasn't until I started hearing from English-speaking friends about a missile that I actually went and looked at the English part of the message and was concerned about the translation error. And before we go this week, parties running for at-large legislator seats held their first ever televised policy presentation on Monday. The event saw representatives from 16 parties present their platforms in segments ranging from between 4 to 15 minutes. Now, of course, the, 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 the difference in time there was an issue because, of course, the Taiwan State Building Party, the Green Party and the Taiwan Obasan Political Equality Party lodged a protest over the event's rules for allotted speaking time. And the parties delivered a petition to the Central Election Commission calling for the rules to be changed to ensure fair political competition. So, Michael, you saw some of this debate. And were you a bit perturbed, perturbed, put out that not everyone got the same length of time based on the number of legislature at large seats they have up for grabs? 
Well, dear listeners, Gavin always likes to have a curveball at the end of the show, if possible. And so, yes, uh, this led me to watch the uh, good portion, but not all, of the uh, policy presentations by the parties. I believe that there were a total of 16 parties that were going to that that spoke at it. So there was a problem, a practical problem with allotting time. Yes, it did seem unfair to the smaller parties, and they certainly noted the fact, although it was kind of interesting how they tried to speak so quickly as to put 15 minutes worth of content into five minutes, which was pretty impressive as well. Uh, I, I, though, was deeply heartened by watching this, and I would not have otherwise. It was really an experience of how vibrant Taiwanese democracy is and how many different groups are organized enough out there to get themselves on the party list ballot and even be at this policy presentation that probably not that many people watched, but there was a real range of left field and interesting ideas, and I, I thought it was great. It was really a, uh, a testament to how vibrant Taiwanese civil and political society is. Do you have a favorite? I, I like the Obasang Rights Party, uh, which is, um, I, would, I would describe as a moderate feminist party uh, with uh, a great deal of concern about social issues and working mothers and that kind of thing. I was pretty impressed. And of course, also the the, the Green Party, uh, which is still out there taking the highly unpopular view that at least some forms of marijuana should be legalized. Uh, and it was just a chance for a lot of really progressive groups and some really weird ones. There was this one guy there whose platform had to do with uh, something called the science of reading and bilingual education in Taiwan, which was which was truly bizarre as as well. So it, it was a good thing. Yeah, I do enjoy the uh, the many different candidates and parties that exist. And I think actually what's uh, interesting about Taiwanese politics is that there is often crossover uh, between small parties and the major parties. I mean, successive Green Party chairs, for example, have eventually ended up in the DPP. and often, Sort of a minor leagues for the DPP. <laughs> yes, so actually that does occur. And uh, there are individuals that do build up their public profile this way. I actually was a bit disappointed with this election cycle, though, because of the lack of fringe candidates, because that's always amusing. I think the smaller parties, they have very interesting projects, and I think it's really worth noting. But then also, yeah, there's not as much fringe candidates. There's one candidate that got attention for uh, calling for removing taro and hot pot, but also legalizing sex work and opposing capitalism and promoting Taiwanese independence. The no taro and hot pot struck a deep <laughs> chord throughout Taiwanese society. I am a full supporter, as much as I like taro. That's, that's rather a divisive statement, though, Brian. Um, yes, that's right. Uh, though it's, uh, for example, food can be quite political. There's quite a lot of people upset with Tsai Ing-wen when she said that she liked carrots, corn, and green peas together in her uh, here bian dung. And that, so, that's, just, that's, just, that's just downright wrong, Brian. Exactly. I'm sorry. Even even her own party, there's significant backlash against her for that uh, that position. <laughs> anyway, that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Michael Fahey. Take care, all. And by Brian Hugh. Good night. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.